Today's message originated in the pulpit of Covenant Community Church by lead pastor Alan Ellis. Covenant Community Church lives to glorify Christ by making disciples who are growing in relationship with God in worship, then with the church in fellowship, and with the world in witness. Now, here's today's message. All right, we're in in the book of 2 Samuel. This is the 54th Sunday that we will spend on the life of David. 2 Samuel chapter 8. When I notified Brandon that he was going to be reading 2 Samuel chapter 8 this morning, I, I told him, <coughs> excuse me, I suggested to him that he might want to uh, find Max McLean on, in, in the audio Bible version of the ESV on the internet somewhere and listen, because this could possibly be in the top 10 of the most boring chapters in the Bible. And it's my responsibility as your pastor um, to take the eighth chapter of the book of the second Sam, uh, the book of Second Samuel, and make it more boring for no, to make it to unpack why it is included in the scripture and why uh, it's included where it is in the scripture. So here, if you're going to try to figure out. Sometimes one of the things I try to do is, what's the theme of each chapter? And, of course, chapter and verse divisions were added later um, so that in public reading people could find uh, a particular passage of Scripture more easily. But if you're looking um, to kind of, what's the subject? What's the theme of this chapter? Then look with me in Second Samuel chapter 8. And you'll see that there's a phrase repeated twice, the same phrase repeated twice in this eighth chapter. And we should all always be looking for clues like that. When we see a word or a phrase or a sentence repeated more than once in a passage, that might give us a clue as to what uh, the narr- narrator's goal <clears throat> or objective is. So look in Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 6. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And then the next sentence I've got underlined, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And then you drop down to verse 14. Then he, meaning David, put garrisons in Edom, Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, period. And then the sentence repeats itself. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So it would seem to me that this would be the theme of chapter 8. Now, we are just three chapters away from David experiencing one of the most, certainly the most moral defeat in his life. Um, when, when he allows his lust to get better of him, when he sees Bathsheba, 
which leads him to murder her husband, uh, which leads to the death of the child that was born to that union. And I, the only way that you will, of course, we're, I, I would, I don't think I would be wrong in saying that we're all familiar with that story. But that story becomes even more dramatic as we read the preceding chapters leading up to his greatest moral failure. And it becomes a more arresting because we see that God has really given everything that God had promised Adam, everything that God had promised Abraham and his descendants, God is giving to David, the man after God's own heart. In chapter 6, we saw that David puts on the linen ephod of, of a priest and brings the ark into Jerusalem. In chapter 7, we see that David has a desire to build, that God has given him rest from all of his, all of his enemies, and David has a desire to build uh, a house, a temple for God. And God says, you know what, let me, let me build a house for you, a house in the dynastic sense, the house of David, in the sense of an everlasting empire. Let me do that for you. And then we come to the eighth chapter of uh, the book of Second Samuel. And again, the narrator is in a kind of collective way. What we read in the eighth chapter of the book of Second Samuel is kind of a gather all together the history of David's victories over his enemies and put it in one spot. What we read in the eighth chapter of the book of Second Samuel really took many years in the prime of David's life to accomplish. And here it is, the crowning achievement. God was with David, and everywhere David went, God gave him victory over his enemies. And all of this in just a few more chapters is going to be lost. It is restored to us in the form of King David's son, Jesus Christ. God, if you'll allow me to speak as a man, finally concluded, I'm going to have to go down there and do it myself. Because even when I find a man who's after my own heart, he's not Sinful human nature is incapable of bringing about my uh, decrees, and therefore I'm going to have to go down there and do it myself. So God comes in the form of David's son, uh, Jesus Christ, and restores to us not only what was lost through Adam's sin, not only what was lost through Abraham's uh, relatives, not only what was lost through David's lust, 
He restores all of that to us as human beings in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm a Christian. Um, that's why I'm not a Jew. I could be a convert to Judaism and be a practicing Jew and, and live the, the faith of Abraham. But when you begin to study the Old Testament, you see, uh, if, if again, I know we've read this passage, I was remarking to Carla this morning how many Sundays we've read Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 25 together. She said, well, we should know it by, by now. And I said, yeah, but we don't. Uh, because sometimes it just takes a, a, a lot of reading the same scripture over and over again until we say, oh, that's it. The reason why we are Christians is explained to us in Paul's message to the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. Look at it, Acts chapter 13, verse 23. This is, this is how the story of David and David's son, Jesus Christ, was put together in the early history of the church. Acts 13, 23, of this man's offspring. He's speaking of David here. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. What's the next three words? As he promised. So the reason why I'm a Christian is because God has fulfilled the promises that he made to Adam, to Abraham, to David. He has fulfilled those promises in Jesus Christ. That's why I am a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the connection. Uh, that's why Christians read the, and study the Old Testament scriptures. These things were written for our, our example. It's because we are children of Abraham. We are, in fact, what Paul asserts in the book of Galatians, we are the true descendants, the true children of Abraham. So we'll pick up the story then with Robert Alter on his commentary in the book, books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Alter says, chapter 7 was a long pause in the progress of the larger story. We saw in chapter 7 the pause that refreshes. If you uh, look in the beginning of uh, the first verse of chapter 7, now when the king lived in his house, speaking of David, in his home in Jerusalem, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So this is, I would characterize chapter 7 as the calm before the storm. Calm before the storm. Chapter 8 is when victory comes. We'll gather up all the loose ends. We'll give you a complete picture of this man. Not only is he a man after God's own heart, not only is he a priest in the household of God, not only does he have devotion to the ark and to the house of God, but this man is a diplomat, uh, politician, king, soldier par excellence. Here it is. The world is at his feet. Everything he touches turns to gold. And in a few short verses, we'll see that his fall is uh, disappointing, it's quick, 
He who has skipped the mountaintops of success finds himself in, in, in the depths of despair, bent over on his knees, not eating, crying tears, asking God to be merciful in the life of a baby that has just been born. It's an amazing story. And if we were just that, if we were just to, you know, say in this church, every, every Sunday is going to be a different topical sermon. And we just decided we're going to talk about David's great sin and second uh, Samuel chapter 11. We would not get the, the surrounding context of the story. Here is a man who has everything. God has given him everything. And he will throw it away. So, Alter says, here we have a pause in chapter 7. It's a pause in the progress of the larger story that was devoted to the theological grounds for the postponement of building a temple and to the promise of a perpetual Davidic dynasty. David says, I want to build, I have this thing on my heart, Nathan, I want to build, I want to build God a house. And God speaks to Nathan in the middle of the night and says, you got to go tell David and say, no, 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 no. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to let him build a house for me. I'm going to let his son build a house, but I'm going to establish a Davidic dynasty that will be an everlasting kingdom. And we use this phrase last week to pay theological attention, particularly when we read the Bible. Particularly when we're reading kind of a historical narrative like this, we might be just at a hut of Dazar, who was... Who is that? I said to Brandon this morning, he he began to look at the chapter and he texted back to me, that's a doozy. And I said, that's a head of days are doozy. You know, you, you might be tempted just, well, how do you pronounce these? Toy, T-O-I. Like Toy Story, like King of Toy. You know, that's where toy rhymes with, isn't toy what swims around in a pond at a Japanese restaurant or... You know, your mind goes all there and you, and you, and you, you, you forget that these writers were reading for theological import. They, they were telling the story, but the story had a theological point to be made. And the theological point to be made as we move into chapter eight is that here it is. God has given David, uh, the desires of his heart. Chapter eight, then Alter says, offers a summary. That's important because sometimes it feels like chapter 8 is kind of out of chronological order, particularly if you look back again with me at the beginning of chapter 7 when it says that God had given David rest from all of his enemies. In chapter 7, at the end of chapter 5, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but what's new Verse 25, chapter 5, David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Uh, <clears throat> so, and then we come to chapter 8, and then we have this story again of what what is David doing? He's out fighting the Philistines again. He's out fighting the Moabites. He's out fighting the Edomites. He's out uh, fighting the Arameans and the Syrians. And so we say, well, this is, uh, some Bible scholars have said it's chronologically out of place, this chapter. But this chapter really is kind of, as Alter says, it's a summary. Okay. 
Here we've been plunking along in the story of David, chapter 6, chapter 7. Now we come to 8, and 8 is like Alice, somebody gave her a card. You know, she likes to watch the Cardinals now. We don't understand it since the stroke. She's become a sports fiend. She will not miss any game. It doesn't matter what game it is. She hates the Cubs. Where did this hatred come from? We do not know. But somebody gave her this huge card, and when you opened it, it played the theme to Star Wars. Is that the theme to Star Wars? Kind of. But it stopped working now, right? She opened it. uh, It's still working? Every time the Cardinals get a home run, she would jump up and open the card up to play the song. And we're like, Alice, really? If your husband was here now, he would say, honey, please. No more of the Cardinals home run card. The the eighth chapter is kind of a Cardinals home run card. It's like, look at this. Rejoice with David. Let's have a party. Throw a parade. Because this guy, he's got the Midas touch. Everything he touches is successful. And we might be tempted to think, wow, let's, you know, up with America. Let's just go out there and we can, a human being can do great things if they put their mind to it. And a few short chapters, uh, he's groveling for grace. Uh, it kind of sounds like us. Baron go, uh, Robert Barron, his commentary on the book of 2 Samuel, he, he says that after the rich and theologically resonant content of the 6th and 7th chapters, you, you might remember the 6th chapter, he, he again puts on the linen ephod. He's living in Jerusalem. He has a house built by for him by the king of Tyre. He brings up the ark. He's he's positioning himself as a priest. Interesting thing, at the end of chapter 8, it says that David's sons became priests in God's household. You might remember the story he's bringing, you know, he's got this little short kind of skirt on, and he's dancing before the Lord, and McCall is... McCullough's wife is looking from the window and she's embarrassed by all of his antics and he's embarrassing himself with all the little maid girls running around and exposing himself in ways that he shouldn't. No great king should behave like that. And and we see, uh, we move into the seventh chapter where David again wants to build a house for God, build a temple for God. And he goes in the middle of the chapter, he goes in to the presence of the Lord, and he has this exemplary prayer, prayer of humility. Who am I? Uh, what, it, what is my household that you should choose me, God, uh, to build a house for me? So after the rich and theologically resonant content of the 6th and 7th chapters, the 8th chapter of Second Samuel might strike us as a bit of an anticlimax. Only 18 verses long, it recounts a number of military victories of David as well as the expansion and consolidation of his empire. We don't have the time to go through it this morning, but if you go carefully through the 8th chapter and all these names that are foreign to us, you will see that David, on every point of the compass, he is defeating his enemies. First, he moves to the west 
and deals with the Philistines in the coastal plains. Then he moves to the east and deals with the Moabites, which strangely enough, his father was, was Ruth's grandson. And in fact, in the story of David, you might remember when David's on the run, he takes his parents and takes them to Moab. But here he deals with them as, as enemies of the kingdom. And this story about, you know, uh, separating the Moabites into three lines and then two of the lines get killed and the third line gets spared sounds very much like what we experience uh, in the news with ISIS. Then he goes north. Then he goes northwest. Then he goes south to Edom. Every, so you would say, well, this is just a stupid little story about with, with people and names that we don't know and places we don't know. But if you study the passage, you'll see that David is in a very forthright and well-planned, uh, deliberate manner. He is subduing, turning into vassals, all of the kingdoms around him so that Solomon, he doesn't know that Solomon's coming yet, so that his son will have peace and the, the goods, the supplies, the materiel, so to speak, to build Solomon's temple. Robert Barron gives good advice. He says, but one must always remember to squint at these texts. So we look, we could read through the eighth chapter and we could listen to Brandon as he's reading through the pastor and, and saying, wow, did he say, how did the days are? How many did the days are in there? And do you have to stutter to read the Bible? How did the days are? Uh, and, and we might say, you know, there's not much going on in this chapter, but the, the chapter's positioned because God wants us to see the height that David will soon fall from. It, it really, when we get to the 11th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, you see, and, and it begins by saying, now this was a season when kings went to war. This was a season when kings waged war. It's really, it's really saying, remember back in chapter 8? Remember when David just, what, he was the man of war and he defeated all, all of the enemies of Israel. This is what he should be doing now, but now he's staying at home and he, instead of defeating his enemies, he's giving in to uh, one of the worst internal enemies that a person can have. The, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the world. So Barron says, one must always remember to squint at these texts through theological lenses. For the author is telling a very important story indeed, the beginning of the process by which the promises to Adam and Abraham are being concretely fulfilled. You remember that. We, we've heard the story, right? Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. Abraham's descendants eventually have to seek refuge in Egypt, and God brings them out. That's where the story begins with Paul's message in the synagogue at Antioch in Pisidiacs chapter 13. Listen, I want to tell you the story. God, God with a mighty hand brought them out of Egypt, and the story picks up. What is, what is God doing? He is, this is the theological intent of the story for you and I as Christians today who are descendants, by the way, not only of Adam, not only of Abraham, but of David. 
God is giving back, restoring, bringing to pass everything that he's promised. We see that in this passage. We saw it in verse 25 of chapter 5, David's fighting the Philistines. We see in chapter 8, the first enemy that David deals with, look at verse 1 of chapter 8, after this David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Look in, in verse 2, and he defeated no Moab. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezar. The Lord, and then we have this, this assertion, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Then he deals with the Edomites further on in the chapter. He, he even has kings coming to him and say, we don't want to fight you. We'll just, uh, who do we write, make the check out to? Wow. And it's topped off. Here is the icing on the cake. Look at verse 15 of chapter 8. So here it is. Boy, it doesn't get any better than this. This is the, in fact, this is the high point of Israel's history. If you talk to a, a Jew today, they will talk about David's reign as being the golden era of Israel's history. It doesn't get any better than this. This, this, you can't go any higher than this. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And then it begins to tick off his the, the sterling qualities of David's administration ending with the statement that David's sons were priests. I mean, it's perfect. So David finally deals with this ancient foe, the Philistines, pushing them out of Israelite territory as, here's the point, as Adam should have pushed the serpent out of the garden. What is being communicated, Baron continues, in just a few breathless verses in the short course of the eighth chapter is doubtless the work of many years that took up the prime of David's career. We are given the rather clear impression that he was a military, diplomatic, and political figure operating at the very height of his powers. And that's what we saw in verse 15 chapter 8. Now, I don't know what demons you have to fight. Uh, I don't know what enemies are occupying your territory. But I, I do know this. I do know that you have demons and en- demons to fight and enemies to conquer. For Christians, we call this the work of sanctification. In sanctification, the work that deals with the enemy, particularly of the flesh, is what Paul terms in the New Testament as the work of mortification, of putting to death those entrenched enemies of our soul. This, this, you see, this is why Paul says these things were written for our example. There's a lesson we can learn here. For that lesson, we resort to Arthur Pink. He says, as the Canaanites were vanquished, the Israelites occupied their places. Thus, it must be spiritually. Here's a lesson for today. Thus, Here's the comparison. What does this story have to do with me? 
in justification, you see, we have what God gave to, if you look at it again, David back in the beginning of chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house, then the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. When, when you first come to know God in Jesus Christ, when you hear the good news of the gospel, that you're not saved by what you do or what you try to do or, or by trying to turn over a new leaf. How many, when you heard, I, I've got a, a letter somewhere still from Kim Goys. She's not a Goys now, she's a Credo. Yes, thank you for that. Kim Goys Credo, that's the Facebook name. She wrote me a letter many years ago, and it, with the letter was a cassette tape. She said, this was the message that you preach where I first heard the good news of the gospel. So, you know, you could, how many years did Kim come to Sunday school, right? Years and years. I mean, you guys went to Sunday school at the old church, right? Grand and, Grand and Carter. You're not old enough to go to Blair and Warren. Well, maybe you are. I don't know. They, they came, they, they would, the, the, the Goy's kids would come to Sunday school and leave, right? And then for Kim to say, this is the message that she said in the letter that gave me wings. I heard, I heard the good news of the gospel of Christ. And when we hear that news, how many know that a load is lifted off? It's because we've been raised on, if it is to be, it's up to me. And the gospel comes along and says, never was up to you. In fact, you're incapable of doing what needs to be done. How many know that that, you can, you can rest that. God gives rest to your soul. But that doesn't mean that all your enemies have been subdued or that all the territory that you need to, occupy has been vanquished. So in justification, we hear the good news of the grace of God and a load is lifted, but God says, now wait, wait, I'm going to, the reason why I've given you enemies is so that you can be skilled in the art of sanctification, particularly with the weapon of mortification. And there's nothing that can burden your soul more than to try to enjoy the rest of justification by just giving up like, well, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And if I'm going to get, if I'm going to get smushed by this and smushed by that, well, just let it be because there's nothing I can do anyways. And, and that's not really New Testament Christianity. God will give you rest from your enemies but in that rest, he is going to put the sword back in your hand and say, there's Philistines to destroy, there are Moabites to destroy, there are Edomites to destroy, there are Arameans to destroy, there are Syrians to destroy. These are the enemies of your soul. This is welcome to the work of sanctification. So in sanctification, you see... Just because we say that God gives us the victory as he gave David the victory doesn't mean that David could stay at home and just say, well, if God doesn't fight the battle for me, then, you know, there's no sense for me going to war. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? God works with his children congruently. And that's the problem in chapter 11, is David should be up and about with the sword in his hand, destroying the enemies of his soul, but he decides to stay home that day and he gets in trouble. God will not believe for you. That's, that's what we do as human beings. God will not defeat your enemies with, without you putting on the whole armor of God. And this is what the New Testament teaches us. When we've done all, then God gives us the ability to stand and to stand firmly and resolutely. I like this in the book of Ephesians. Here it is. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at it, verse 22. We are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's, that's when the rest comes. And we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And as a result, we are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So it's not as though, well, I act and then God acts apart from me, for me, on my behalf. No, it is I act and when I act, God acts with me. That's how it works in the process of sanctification. Justification is a little bit different because you receive. In sanctification, God invites our participation. And in fact, he will not win a battle for us unless we show up ready to fight. I close with this. Here's the explanation, Pink says, of David's success. He fought not in his own strength. Okay. Uh, Yeah, but he had to show up for the battle. Yes, he had to show up for the battle. Yes, he had to put on... Uh, the proper accoutrement, which for him was not Saul's armor, but was a sling and five stones. Put on the whole armor of God. You say, well, you know, I'm no good at fighting these kind of enemies. Just get to the battlefront. Put on the whole armor of God. And when you act, God will act on and in your behalf. So the Christian fighting the good fight of faith, though weak in himself, is energized is energized by divine grace. If you're in a battle today, I won't presume to say that you are, but if you're in a battle today, and even if you're not in a battle today, you will be. That's the nature of Christian life. You you can't do any better than this verse of Scripture. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. Write it out. Stick it on a post note. Put it somewhere where you can see it. This is a promise that God has given to us. He has fulfilled it in Jesus Christ. And those who name the name of Jesus Christ, this is a promise that he will fulfill for you. Look at it. It's one of the most powerful promises in the New Testament. For sin will have no 
dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will not have dominion over me. I am, I will not be defeated as long as I am fighting because God's promise to me, as long as I show up, put on the whole armor of God and fight with my strength, his strength, his strength will supersede my strength. It's not that you let go and let God. That's what we do in justification, but in sanctification, when we are fighting the mortal enemies of our soul, we find ourselves, as Pink says, energized by divine grace. It's exactly the point of the colic today, coincidentally. If you didn't hear it, O God, from whom all good proceeds, grant that by your inspiration, we may think those things that are right. Remember Ephesians 4.23, by the renewing of your mind, we may think those things that are right and by your merciful guiding may do them. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. To think, to put off the old man, to renew the mind, to put on the new man in Christ Jesus, that through his merciful guiding we may do those things which will put to death, vanquish those enemies to bring about God's promise. For more information on Covenant Community Church, visit us online at www.cov comchu.org That's covcomchu.org Or give us a call at 314-869-4367 At Covenant Community Church, it's our prayer that the preceding message has served to glorify Christ and further God's work in your life.